0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Morenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Catherine Chandler about her new book on Manning, How Humans, Machines and Media Perform Drone Warfare. Unmanning studies the conditions that create unmanned platforms in the United States through a genealogy of experimental pilotless planes flown between 1936 and 1992. Characteristics often attributed to the drone, including machine-like control, enmity, and remoteness are achieved by displacements between humans and machines that shape a mediated theater of war. Rather than primarily treating the drone as a result of the War on Terror, This book examines contemporary targeted killing through a series of failed experiments to develop unmanned flight in the 20th century. Well, Catherine, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's really great to have you here with us today. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the global pandemic recently, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work, and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from the experience.
0: So my research addresses intersections between politics, technology and media, um, and much of my research interest lies in the question of failure um, and the ways in which we imagine technologies as doing one thing and then they operate in a different kind of way. Um, So my research is primarily historical and um, the book that we're talking about today, Unmanning, Um, covers the histories of drone warfare from 1936 to 1992. Um, I think there's really important questions about what it means to live online um, and the limitations and possibilities that are enabled through screens. Um, Much of my work is concerned with drone technologies that actually are not even operated through screens and are experimenting with the idea of remote control and what that means um, historically. Um, But I think in the present moment, we've seen it the ways in which digital platforms are imagined as providing connectivity um, and places for replacing public forums, especially during the pandemic. Um, And I often reflected with my students about the ways in which I thought Zoom really resembled Um, certain aspects of uh, being a drone operator. You have this uh, uncanny ability to zoom into a classroom and be close to students, maybe pick up on intimate details of their life, even as we are incredibly distant. And I think there's something about that paradox that is really important. Mm. Uh, But I also think there's something really important about the ways in which the idea of access to online platforms is actually very limited. And certainly in the United States and Europe, where a lot of work from home took place online, that was only for a certain class of people um, and for certain kinds of work. Um, There's a large number of workers who continue to have to work in person and largely those were workers who were then exposed to conditions that people online were protected from. And I think that inequality and in access also is something that really resembles drone warfare. So there's a way of imagining the perspective of the drone and the drone operator that implies a certain kind of privilege and access. Um, there's another perspective which would be the perspective of the person who's targeted. Um, and exposed to violence who has a very different way of operating from that technology or w- operating in relation to that technology because they're excluded from the platform. So I think those inequalities are have been exacerbated during the pandemic and um, point to the real limitations of thinking about global... Uh, thinking about digital platforms only as places for connectivity and did you have to switch
1: to online teaching how did you find that
0: um so I was yes I did online teaching with my students and we we engaged in our classes remotely um And uh, in in many ways I really enjoyed online teaching and I think my students really enjoyed online classes with me. Um, I totally transformed my teaching style in order to relate to the digital platform um, and to really sort of think about how um, embracing the ways in which the technology worked suggested new forms of organizing the classroom. So um, we did a lot of flipped classroom. Um, I'm an advocate of decolonizing uh, education and and really reversing the power dynamics to the extent possible in the classroom. So we did lots of student-centered learning, and students were really responsible for organizing their classes. So um, I tried to make it feel as not not as like as as if I was sort of surveilling them. Um, mm-hmm. But I, many students. Um, talked about in my classes, their experiences in other classes, particularly with um, some of the online tools that were used for proctoring exams and um, even simple platforms for, you know, online materials and the ways in which those were associated with practices of surveillance and how surveillance of students through these online platforms massively increased during the pandemic. And it became very normal for professors to check online whether you watched a video or how long you spent on the professor's assignment page. Um, And, um, you know, the proctoring tools recorded students in their rooms during the times they took exams. Um, And, you know, any variation or default of what they were doing would be noted by the algorithms and that report would be sent to the professors. And, those anomalies, as is common with, um, you know, algorithmic technologies, tended to um, target students of color, um, students with disabilities, um, and those sort of again exacerbated inequalities in the classroom.
1: So, could you tell us more about yourself and how did you get interested in what you do? Um, so
0: I I started studying science and technology studies when I was an undergraduate student. Um, I was really excited about the interdisciplinary framework um, and the ways in which thinking about um, science and technology from a social, philosophical, theoretical, and cultural perspective um, introduced um, new forms, new fields of thinking, and um, new ways of thinking about scholarship um, that transected different disciplines, um, and that is an interest that I have continued to be really concerned with and um, continue to to have continued to develop in my master's degree and my PhD mm. and in my current position. Um, so I um, have long been interested in the relationships between technology, forms of representation, the ways that ties to violence. Um, Some of my earliest field work uh, was thinking about landmines and nuclear um, waste as sort of invisibilized forms of violence in the landscape. Um, And while I was doing some of the research for that project, um, I came across some of the early um, experiments with drone warfare in the um, in the Nevada desert, which happened to overlap with where the Nevada test site is. So Creech Air Force Base, which is where many of the drone flights were initially operated from and was one of the major testing areas, um, is, is adjacent to the Nevada nuclear test site, um, and so while I was out in the desert sort of thinking about this project about violence in the ground, I became aware of this new form of violence in the air. And that sort of really flipped the perspective on my work. So instead of thinking about relationships between technology and place through, um, you know, invisible presences in landscapes, I I started thinking about it through air power and drone technologies. Um, And this was in 2008, where in Drone aircraft really weren't being thought about um, by a lot of people. Um, And the projects were still, you know, largely classified and mostly secret. Um, And I ended up using a historical approach for my book because I couldn't get access to the information that I wanted about contemporary drone operations. Um, And I was very lucky because I went to the National Air and Space Museum archives where they had exhibited um, the one of the predator drones that had been used in Afghanistan in 2001 um, and asked one of the archivists about uh, this particular drone. And he made an offhand remark that this was, of course, a very old technology, not a new technology, um, and presented me with a whole bunch of files about drone aircraft um, dating back decades. And that sort of really shifted my book because I realized that what everyone was talking about as a totally new technology actually had uh, a long history um, and was related to decades of experimentation by the US military and um, lots of failed projects associated with unmanning that happened long before the contemporary ones um, that were used in the war on terror and
1: continue to be used today. Oh, that sounds absolutely fascinating. So I was wondering what roles did your uh, mentors and colleagues play along your career journey and how did you find yourself welcomed in this perhaps some may some call a masculine field?
0: Um, yes, so this is a really interesting question. Part of what has enabled me to do my research is that I don't really belong to a field. um, having mm-hmm. been trained as an interdisciplinary scholar and someone who is in science and technology studies and uh, critical theory, race and gender studies, I've always sort of been outside of everyone's field, and that has real disadvantages, but I suppose the advantages is that no one ever thinks that I belong. And so, um, that means that there's less questions about getting access. Um, and I, I, one of the things that's really interesting about the difference between historical materials, especially those that are declassified or those that are, you know, now technologies that are obsolete, um, is many people are willing to talk about them and the ways in which contemporary. Um, contemporary projects, it's just impossible to get access to the information. Um, so I was lucky to um, have uh, the opportunity to interview a number of retired personnel um, who shared with me a lot of information about the project. And I think there's definitely a gendered role there in the sense that um, they had expertise to sort of share and convey with me Um and, yeah, um, I, I think it's been interesting to me in this. I'm currently a, a professor in the School of Foreign Service, um, and my disciplinary background is very different from that of many of my colleagues, especially those that come from more traditional security studies perspectives. Um, and I think they see my work and my contributions as something that is sort of outside of their usual disciplinary expertise. And so um, that has given me the opportunity to make critical claims that are not typically made within these fields, but I also they're also marginalized because of the various different sort of disciplinary perspectives. Um, I was very lucky to study uh, my PhD in the rhetoric department at Berkeley, which is, uh, known program for interdisciplinary work in the humanities and social sciences. And um, my dissertation advisors um, included a a really interesting um, mix of people from different backgrounds. So it was co-chaired by David Bates, who is an intellectual historian who works on political theory and histories of artificial intelligence, uh, Karis Thompson, who is a science and technology studies scholar who works on feminist technologies, Samra Esmir, who is a postcolonial theorist um, and legal scholar, and um, Jake Kozak, who is a geographer um, who works on science and technology studies. So um, there, again, there was a really diverse interdisciplinary field of scholars who helped to shape my work and produce something that um, also doesn't necessarily fit with any one intellectual tradition and is really interested in sort of interrogating contemporary politics and power through technology and pointing out the ways in which technology and power are connected to issues of race, gender, and nation, and even in denials of power, right? So saying that it's a machine or it's unmanning Um, That is a way of re-articulating a particular idea of who is human, whose life should be protected and preserved, um, and that those forms of inclusion and exclusion that I sort of talked about initially through the framework of Zoom or even being online are really important political structures that operate today. And I think it's really important to address those and to think about the inequalities that they create globally.
1: So what would be your advice to young career researchers or students who are a little, b- a little bit unsure about this interdisciplinary aspect of the work, uh, for example, like you as you do? What, what are you unsure about what? Not, not being tied down to one discipline, but really being in the intersection between
0: well, I mean, I don't think it's actually easy to end up where I ended up. So I don't think that <laughs> happens to most young researchers. <laughs> it's a very bad, but it's a very poor um, decision in terms of uh, having a career later on if you don't fit squarely into any discipline, because it means that no one wants to hire you. So,
1: But it's been quite rewarding, hasn't it, for you? I I have been very lucky to mm-hmm. be able
0: to um, have the opportunity to continue to pr- pursue my scholarship and to to work in ways that don't fit into any disciplines. But it is truly challenging. Um, mm-hmm. And I it's perhaps a separate conversation, but I really think that academic fields continue to be very hierarchical and very oriented towards disciplines and. Um, you know, the movement for interdisciplinarity is now decades old. This is again nothing that's anything new. and it continues to be very challenging to pursue research um, that wants to think about not just technology, not just the drone, but its intersection with, um, you know race and gender issues, their intersection with political issues. Uh, what this says about agency, what this says about responsibility, how we can think about different forms of accountability. Um, And I really strongly believe that uh, we need more scholars who are willing to ask challenging questions in cross-disciplinary fashions because the nature of the problems that we are confronting globally, everything from AI to climate change, does not fit squarely within academic Mm -hmm. disciplines. So... Um, yeah, I, I, it's again, old news to say that academics should study problems, not disciplinary, um, um, fields. And I took that very seriously. Um, and I'm, I'm very glad that I had the opportunity to do that, but I think it continues to be, uh, the structures of universities continue to make it difficult for young researchers to really address, um, um, research in this way. And I, I mean, I think we need more collaborations as well, um, more opportunities to link um, researchers in, in the sciences with researchers in the social sciences and humanities, um, and think about how very different approaches to, say, an en- engineering problem, um, how there's something really generative, even in things that seem ultimately incompatible, um, and how you know, having those difficult conversations and slow conversations are really important to move forward ethical and political debates that need to be associated with
1: technological systems. Oh, such important points. Thank you very much for raising these. So your curiosity and expertise in um, unmanned Uh, platforms have culminated in your latest book, The Unmanning, How Humans, Machines, and Media Perform Drone Warfare. So can you tell us how did you come to writing it?
0: So as I mentioned previously, right, this book um, emerged from my dissertation research, which started with this uh, archive of materials that I found, which detailed early drone projects developed by the US military, Um, And um, I think the most important part of um, this was finding uh, an archive within the National Archive um, that was um, 123 boxes of materials. um, Oh, wow. Yeah, 123 boxes of materials for a book about the history of drone warfare that was collected in the 1950s. So all of this 123 boxes of the history of the drone referred to all kinds of remote control projects that existed prior to the 1950s. Um, and this was again, really important because we so often think about the drone as a new technology and it was immediately clear to me that this was, you know, a, you know there was a huge amounts of development um, that had happened Um, during, before, during, and after World War II. Um, These include, you know, materials um, like um, a, a New York Times Magazine article about the drone in 1946. Saying that it's going to inaugurate remote control war at that time. Mm. Um, And that was referring to drone aircraft that were flown remotely by radio control. They were controlled from other airplanes um, because at that time, Uh, you needed to maintain a line of sight connection between the aircraft um, and it was easier to maintain a line of sight connection for the radio control between two aircraft than from an operator on the ground into the air. Um, And so they would remotely operate aircraft from another aircraft um, and these were used during um, the operations crossroads atomic tests. Um, And the drones were responsible for collecting air samples and for, um, uh, they were also used to film and um, take record, film using photography and moving pictures um, of the atomic tests. So there is this huge history of, drones being used um, that was not being discussed at the time. And a number of other authors have sort of brought this to the fore, but I think my book is unique in the way in which it sort of really details how ideas of drone warfare have been imagined since the 1930s and 1940s and um, the ways in which those imaginaries continue to shape how drone warfare is talked about um, today. Um, and I, I think also one of the things that's really important with the historical materials, particularly because many of these projects were considered failures, they were canceled, they were kept secret, they were never brought to light in part because the drones crashed and fell, they didn't work as oper- as expected. Um, there was enormous challenges in terms of getting the systems to, um, to operate um, is the ways in which there is so much investment, um, both of human time, um, but as well as money and resources that really creates something like the drone. And this is not something that sort of suddenly evolves technologically, but is the result of political and economic decisions. Um, And the book attends to some of the ways in which these decisions made sense at certain points and then didn't make sense at other points. And I hope this is a reminder um, to you know, policymakers and others today that um, the decisions that are made about drone aircraft, for example, or, you know, military AI systems are human decisions and we can really shape how these systems are used and deployed. And if, you know, if we wanted to stop drone warfare, if we wanted to limit the use of drone aircraft, that would certainly be something that could be decided. Um, and it is not the technology that's driving this. It's a set of political, legal, social, and economic decisions. And um, those need to be transformed just as much as the technological systems in order to change how these systems are functioning and the sort of militarized uses
1: for them. So well, let's delve into the science part. Can you explain what exactly is a drone? What can we call a drone? Well, so this is
0: one of the important things about my book is um, it takes a rhetorical um, stance on what is a drone. And so there are numerous remote controlled flying aircraft that exist before the drone that I describe as the first drone. The reason why I describe it as the first drone is it is the first one that was called drone. So um, Hmm. in the 1930s, 36, the United States uh, Navy had the opportunity to visit uh, the British Navy um, and the British Navy had a remote controlled aircraft that they were using for target training. So some of the first aircraft were not initially imagined as weapons. They were imagined as targets in order to train Um, drone, train anti-aircraft gunners to shoot aircraft down out of the sky. And this is in the very early ages of aerial warfare, um, where it's still unclear how aerial bombardment is going to work. So in the 1930s, it's still prior to the sort of massive aerial campaigns and aerial bombings associated with World War II, though, of course, there had been tests of aerial bombing during World War I. So the drone actually emerges as a technology that is supposed to simulate uh, air uh, aerial bombardment and train um, people on the ground in order to shoot down the aircraft. Um, obviously, you don't want to shoot down your own pilots, um, and you also don't want to sh- shoot down perhaps the most expensive aircraft that have been built. And so the models were often smaller models. Um, some of them were built out of... Um, know, um, plywood, um, relatively cheap parts. Um, Some of them were based on early model airplanes, Um, so they also have a history that is connected to um, hobby planes and uh, hobby people who flew remote-controlled aircraft as hobbies. Um, And so even today, the term drone itself Actually referred to remote-controlled aircraft that were used to train anti-aircraft gunners on the ground, and then later on, these remote-controlled aircraft were also used to change, um, to train Navy shipmen, um, and was also used in uh, Air, Fo- Air Force Top Gun um, competitions, uh, Navy Top Gun competitions, and the drone was the target. Um, the remote-controlled drone was the target that um, piloted aircraft learned to shoot down. Um, and you know, within the military, historically, drone has really had a pejorative understanding associated with it because it was mm. um, the you know it was the remote-controlled decoy um, mm. that um, that the that they would use as a training tool. Um, for other wartime operations. Um, but this, you know, same history of the drone being used as a as a as a anti as a target for target practice, um, that very early project, um, which began in the 1930s, the commander in charge of it quickly realized that he, he that the drone could also serve as a weapon. And so he promoted that particular remote control plane as a prototype of one of the first guided missiles. Um, And in um, the late 1930s and early 1940s, RCA built one of its early television sets to be integrated into this aircraft, um, this remote controlled drone. And it was operated for a month long operation in 1944 in the South Pacific. Um, The drone was flown remotely through cameras um, and was really a prototype of, you know, the drones that are being used today. Um, This mission also really, for me, exemplifies the way in which race and gender fit into the drone aircraft. Um, The um, personnel that were involved in these missions called the drone the American Kamikaze. And so... These drone aircraft were flown remotely, and they were designed to be crash into an airplane. I mean, crash into a ship. Um, The airplanes Mm. would crash into the ship, Um, and though this was never actually successfully carried out, the idea was that the drone was imagined as a corollary, a non-human corollary to the Japanese kamikaze, and so. You can see the ways in which uh, wartime imaginaries of who the enemy is as well as racialized stereotypes are being imagined as the uh, engineers develop these these weapons systems. Um, and I think those, those histories are really important to excavate and think about because it shows how the technology is not a neutral system. It is not imagined um, simply as a mechanical agent, it's being associated with all kinds of human factors as well. Um, and um, those, uh, those, those, those shape how we understand um, and operate the technologies.
1: So how do we see these early technologies evolving into the contemporary throughout the 20th century?
0: So it's really interesting because, again, it's not a straightforward evolution. And I, again, I think it's really important to see how the drone is always deeply connected to uh, social, political, um, economic systems um, and the ways in which decisions, um, in, in this, these cases by the U.S. military, can um, you know, abruptly change and transform how the technology is used. So the weapons that I'm describing from World War II... Um, were deemed by Vannevar Bush, who was sort of the head of um, science R&D for the military during World War II as a colossal failure. Um, and it was seen as a really wrong way to go about developing uh, missile systems. Um, and so the project was all canceled. Um, the televisions that RCA had developed um, were basically mothballed and never used. Um, those televisions, however, w- actually became part of the domestic televisions, um, a part of the of the television set that was developed for the drone known as the IMI, which is an image orthicon, which helped to like transmit the image and make it visible on screen. Um, that became a key part for the development of television sets that were used domestically in the United States. So that drone actually lived on not at all in a military context, but in uh, a domestic commercial context. Um, And um, the next set of drones that were developed um, were jet drones um, and they flew very fast. Um, And they were initially used to, um, as targets for training, um, training um, uh, anti-aircraft personnel, how to shoot down jet planes. Um, And those were equipped with cameras and um, used for aerial surveillance, um, mostly in uh, Vietnam and Korea. Um, And so, The first systems were imagined as weapons platforms, whereas during the Cold War, unmanned aircraft were imagined as flying cameras. Um, And the programs were uh, a corollary to or a competitor, depending on the circumstances, um, the development of satellite technologies. Um, Thousands of drone missions were flown for aerial surveillance during the Vietnam War. And again, at the end of the Vietnam War, those systems were also deemed a sort of colossal failure. Um, Many Hmm. of the drones flew off course. They did not go the direction that they wanted them to. Um, These were film cameras, not real-time images. So um, the drone would fly its flights and then it would drop a capsule of film, which would be collected. The capsule of film would have to be flown to a photo developing studio, the photos would have to be developed, and then they would have to be flown back to the commander in order to get the information from them. And so that process, even at its fastest, took eight to 12 hours. And by that time, by the time you got your images, often um, the other military that you were trying to um, surveil was in a different location. Um, So, Again, the sort of ways in which we imagine the drone being useful um, was not, it it did not prove to be useful in these ways um, during Vietnam. Um, And um, some countries were aware of the ways in which the drones were being used for reconnaissance, um, and the American models that were used in Vietnam were bought by the Israelis um, in um the early 1970s um, and again the prototype didn't fly as expected and it was not able to be useful during um the 1973 war with egypt um commonly known as the yom kippur war um, but it then led to israeli developments with um uh, unmanned aircraft um, and it again there's sort of interesting story here about technological exchange between the United States and Israel during the late 1970s and early 1980s. Um, Ultimately, the United States tried to pursue a model of a drone aircraft called the Aquila, which was headline news in the late 1980s, um, as a sort of a g- example of military misspending and excess um, the price tag for the drone u- ultimately um, was you know close to a, a billion dollars um, and this is oh, wow functioned yes so um, at the same time as the United States sort of massively misspent its money on this early, Uh, unmanned aircraft that um, is is again sort of seen as one of the colossal failures of technological development of military technological development during this time period Um, the Israelis made a model that was sort of much cheaper um, and built out of fiberglass um, which has become then this prototype of what would become the predator drone Um, and um The U.S. bought a version of this, which was known as the Pioneer, which it deployed in the first Gulf War. Um, So these were the Israeli drones were the ones that were reintegrated television again. So um, television had sort of changed significantly since it had been initially tried with the RCA televisions in the late 19, in the 1940s. And um, these systems were able to provide real-time streaming video from the drone platform to commanders um, that were located um, approximately 20 miles away from where the drone would be. Um, and so that became the sort of model of monitoring the um, monitoring the battlefield by um, television. Um, this worked much better in the Israeli context, um, which was concerned with its wars with um, Lebanon um, and Jordan at the time, um, um, as you know, drones could be placed near the border with Israel and then flown 20 mm. miles away in order to be able to see what was happening, whereas the United States at the time was still concerned with um, the Cold War, and that kind of technology didn't make strategic sense to them in terms of, uh, you know, a standoff between the Soviet Union and the United States. And so, again, there was a very different understanding about what this technology was for and who was going to use it, how it was going to be developed. Um, and, And again, as I mentioned, what's really notable from the headlines of the late 1980s and early 1990s is um, unmanned aircraft were, uh, you know, headline news in the Washington Post and the New York Times as exemplars of excess military spending um, and the ways in which sort of failed military projects, misspent money, um, and did not achieve what they, uh, what their intended goals were. Um, so all of this history is layered into the sort of supposed newness of the drone strikes and the war on terror. Um, And it was really surprising to me during the research process. I actually wrote an email to one of the journalists who covered drones during the 1980s and 1990s. Um, he was a staff reporter at the time for the Washington Post and is now um, a professor of journalism at NYU. Um, and he did not remember covering drone hmm. craft during the 1980s and wrote back to me that he thought they were new um, and was really surprised that I had uncovered his byline um, in the articles that I found about this. So oh, Wow. <laughs> I'm really interested in what this collective amnesia about technology means. Um, And I think it's really important to think about this right now as well, because we're of course seeing a real resurgence in discussions of artificial intelligence and military artificial intelligence as well. And um, there's a long prehistory to artificial intelligence that also is deeply tied to the cold war and U S defense and, and, Many of the early artificial intelligence projects and research were funded by um, by um, U.S. military spending during the Cold War. And at the end of the Cold War, those projects also were canceled as they were not seen as um, as as yielding any results Um, and again, sort of. 30 years later, we now see a real resurgence in this. And right now, military is massively investing in artificial intelligence again. So what do these cycles mean? And and what does it mean to rethink our ideas of technological evolution um, as instead these contingent processes, as ones that are deeply shaped by political and strategic goals, um, and also the important ways in which, the, you know, machine evolution is imagined as driving this, whereas it's actually being determined by, um, you know, engineers, policymakers, um, actors uh, within the military who think that unmanning um, is, uh, you know, the, a strategy for the future, um, and. And who is engaged in these discussions? I think that's the other thing that's really important to me is um, I think a lot of choices are being made about what the future of war is supposed to be looked at look like. Um, And I um, really believe in a way of thinking about the nation, national security, but, you know, global relations much more broadly that would be much more accountable to a broader swath of humans to much, uh, to a different set of actors that would not ask just questions about national security, but, you know, what this means for humanity much more broadly, what kind of inequities is this perpetuating? Um, you know, wh- what what kind of relationships mm. are being built into the technological systems that are being built? Um, and, you know, at times not even consciously, right? And so how can we be much more aware of the implicit and explicit forms of bias that are shaping the development of technologies um, often in highly militarized passions and what would be a, you know, a more peaceful way of trying to develop technological systems, you know, what, what, what AI systems are not being funded. Um, for example, you know, technologies that are not imagining the future of warfare, but you know, I've, a radically different kind of future. Um, wh- where is the space to sort of be thinking about this? And again, how have these disciplinary conventions, these conventions of what politics mean, the conventions of what um, engineering mean, you know, really limited the scope of how
1: we imagine and think about technological systems. So what discoveries about yourself and maybe about society along your journey to writing your book on Manning surprised you the most?
0: Um, that's an interesting question. I think there's, uh, I think there's a, in the book, I'm very interested in this psychological concept called disavowal. So disavowal is where, you say something isn't there but precisely in saying it's there you recognize that it's there so mm. one of the things that i think happens with unmanning is it says to us unmanning there's no man but what becomes immediately apparent is there is definitely a man right there behind it and that's specifically gendered um i think in an important way right they're not unwomened aircraft um, mm. and of course today many of the operators are women um, and uh, but I, I think we might ask ourselves this question about what kind of masculinity what kind of imagined human is behind these technological systems and I mean this relates to research that has been done for example about the ideas of a user right so when you ask people you know who, who people use gender neutral terms when they describe the user of a computer. But if you ask people to draw who a user is, um, they overwhelmingly draw men, usually about Mm -hmm. 70% of the time, right? So I think there's this way in which, um, you know, behind terms like human, user, unmanned, um, there's this figure that you know continues to haunt us which is a particular ideal of what is human that is you know tied to actually you know much earlier forms of how we think about the human i think going back not just to the cold war but to the enlightenment and the sort of rational individual often white european male um, and the ways in which these sort of histories continue to be embedded in technological systems in our, our understandings of what a political system is and our understandings of what an academic system is. And I think there's a real call at the moment to really subvert that and call attention to the plurality and diversity of ways of understanding who is human, right? Which is, you know, not just men and women, but non-binary people, um, gender fluid people, um, the, you know, the rich diversity of what men and women might mean across multiple cultural contexts and again to include a much broader range of categories and persons like how does you know the term persons or thinking about a plurality of people make it much much more difficult to you know have a set assumption of you know this is singular um singular version of the human that is supposed to be, you know, the operator of technological systems, you know, moving towards an increasingly rationalized world, which is often associated with all kinds of forms of surveillance um, and, you know, has numerous possibilities associated with it, but also huge limitations. And I wanna have a much broader discussion about the assumptions of how we think you know, political, economic and technological systems work and to really challenge some of the foundations of them. And I think there's really important work that's been done by uh, postcolonial theorists, theorists from the global th- the global south, um, who are really subverting our ideas of what technologies are, what, you know, what social systems are, what political systems are. And I think that work is really important to, to transform um, how we are operating today. Um, But I I think that work, you know, continues to be marginalized. And it's really, you know, as we open our computers and more and more people across the world, for example, are using Facebook as their primary way of accessing the internet with all of the limitations associated with that. Um, you know, as we've become more and more technologically homogeneous, um, what, how is that changing our society and, and how can we work against some of those modes, which I think are
1: Um, increasingly militarizing our everyday life. Oh yeah, for sure. These are such important topics. And as you say, we also need to bring different people uh, into the discourse, not just one population, isn't it?
0: Yes, definitely. I mean, I think one of the limitations of my book is that it's very much told from the U.S. perspective, U.S.-Israeli perspective, right? And I think it in some ways replicates what the drone does, right? So people on Mm. the other side of this, right? The combatants in Vietnam, the civilians in Vietnam, right? The people that were watched by these cameras, um, they're not given agency or voices, they're targets, right? And I think there's some really important scholarship. Um, My colleague Medea Tahir has written a book about sort of perspectives of the drone from the ground and Pakistan um, and Afghanistan, right? And I think that reversal of this drone-like gaze uh, is really important complement to sort of, again, undo what um, this kind of totalizing aerial godlike view that is proposed by the drone, but, you know, never actually sees the sort of rich human relationships um, that are on the ground. It just mm. sort of flattens those. Um, and I mean, this is many military technologies. It's not just the drone. So I think we, we really need to work against this, um, the, the, the potential of technology to flatten um, relationships and you know, how to insert sort of texture back into that is is a challenge that um, I think many engineers and other people working in, um, you know, fields of robotics and um, AI developments would be really interested in. I think more opportunities need to be provided to not just work on Department of Defense contracts, but to really imagine different kinds of technological systems that would work in different ways.
1: And have you ever piloted a drone yourself?
0: I have. Um, so my current research is on humanitarian drone operations in on the African continent. Um, and in that work, I um, flew a drone that is used for um, aerial mapping, um, so it's not it's not a military drone. Um, it's a it's basically a flying camera, which is was used in a community development project to create a map of the island of Zanzibar. Um, and it's an autonomously operated drone that sort of flies a set course path and collects photographs that you can then photo montage into a highly detailed aerial map. And I can tell you, it was lots of fun to fly. I had a great time with my, um, with the
1: operators who instructed me how to use it. Oh, sounds so exciting. So I suppose it's one of the perks of your job (laughs) to pilot those uh, cool machines. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've taken
0: up. And again, I think there's a, a very different way way in which we could imagine drones operating, right, which would include many more mm-hmm. people being able to be operators and have access to the information. I mean, even programs that aim to collect open access data through drones, I think they're really important um, to keep working on and to provide money for. But those, of course, have limitations as well, because, you know, only some people have access to data online. And, um, you know, high-resolution qual- high maps you can't access on a mobile phone, for example. You need a computer to be able to do that. And the majority of the world accesses the internet through their mobile phones. So I think there continues to be major access issues that we need to think about in technological systems, and uh, as well as the resource issues that are associated with all of the technologies that we're using.
1: So what are you currently working on, and what will be your next project?
0: So I have two current projects that I'm working on. I just sort of briefly describe one, which is thinking about the potential of humanitarian drone operations, as well as the limitations associated with um, uh, drones that sort of replicate the models of um, targeting and protection that are. Um, that are used by military drones. Um, And I'm currently authoring a report for the United Nations Institute of Disarmament Research on gender and military AI and thinking about the ways in which um, categories of gender remain implicit in technological systems like artificial intelligence and how it's really important to recognize the ways in which data sets, for example, um, don't accurately represent um, gender um, usually skewed towards men, facial recognition, voice recognition, tend mm. to recognize men more often. Um, and th- these, you know, reflect societal biases that you can see again in the idea of unmanning, but, uh, uh, you know, under a different guise in artificial intelligence. So I'm hoping that work will inform some of the current efforts for Um, disarmament and, you know, thinking about new normative frameworks for
1: um, digital technologies, uh, digital war technologies. Oh, that sounds super interesting. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book?
0: Um, So my website is katherinechandler.net. And that's the best place to get information about my, 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 Uh, book. Um, It is available through Amazon, um, and it was published by Rutgers University Press, and there's a page associated with that. There's been a number of book reviews. Um, You can find them in Security Dialogue and Cultural Studies. Um, um, So yes, I'm interested in, in the book being read widely. And I really hope, uh, you know, interdisciplinary audience has a chance to look at this. So
1: I'm really excited for the listeners
0: um, to read it.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for this stimulating discussion. Thank you. It's a real delight to be here.